And as we come to hear the Lord Jesus this morning, as he teaches a crowd of some thousands, he urges them and he urges us in the strongest of terms, commands us even to understand the times in which we find ourselves, where we're up to in the scheme of things. And that time that we live is between his first coming, when he came to bring salvation, uh, and his second coming, where he'll bring judgment and gather his people together. That's the time in which we live. And it's not something the Bible's silent about. speaks about it all the time. Jesus is returning. Uh, In fact, do you know, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament. Okay, if you get really bored this morning, you could go and count them all and make sure that that's right. There you go. 200, don't do it this morning, do it after church. Uh, Then you would really live a boring life if you're counting them. 260 chapters in the Bible, there's 318 references or allusions to the return of Jesus Christ. It averages out about one verse in 25 is an explicit or implicit reference to Jesus coming back. One in 25, something the Bible talks about all the time. And the fact is that Jesus himself spoke about it passionately, regularly, often about the fact that he was going away and then he was going to come back. And so we heard a couple of weeks ago in Luke 9, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you pray your kingdom come. That's what he taught us to pray. Luke 17, over a few pages, the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end right through to the other. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, we're in between those two times. He's suffered and been rejected, but he's coming again when he'll light up the sky. And so we're living in that period in between his suffering, rejection and death and his resurrection. That's already happened. We celebrated that last weekend with Easter and we're between that and his return, which we're talking about this week. He's not yet returned, but he is coming. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus for the first time gives extensive teaching uh, in his ministry on that event. And what he really says essentially is, don't be like James. You've got to be ready. Don't be like Xavier with the homework. You've got to be ready. Not ready for those things, ready for him coming. It follows right on from a bunch of other teaching. Uh, In the previous chapters, he announced Uh, woes on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in chapter 11, saying, being religious won't save you. Piety and pretense will only bring you unstuck at the judgment. Uh, But just as surely as that, also wealth and prosperity won't save you. And so he's told the parable of the rich fool who put all his money into his barns. Loving money and living for this world just takes your eyes off God and only gives the illusion of security. And so if you trust your stuff, Just like if you trust your religious observances, both of those are going to bring you unstuck. You will be destroyed. He's been saying only he, only Jesus can deliver you from death and from judgment. And he's coming back to bring in that final judgment and to gather his people together for reward and also to judge. And so you must be ready. That's the logic of these chapters. Well, how do you get ready? That's the most important question, isn't it? How do you get ready for it? Well, let's hear what he has to say about it. Uh, And he tells you how to be ready. And basically it boils down to having the right attitude. 
Well, that's part of it anyway. Having the right attitude, the attitude of joyful expectation that he'll be back. It starts in verse 35 with this little story. He says, be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. I don't know if you've ever come home from a wedding uh, late at night. Uh, What's that like? Is everything organised at home when you get there? You've done it. Really? Was it exciting? Was the lights all on and people waiting for you to take off your shoes? And uh, <laughs> What an image it is. You know? uh, this Hebrew wedding wasn't like our weddings. We only have one night of partying. Uh, sometimes they could go for two days. Sometimes they could go for up to a week having a wedding party. They knew how to party. Um, the, and, and so it was literally up in the air when the master would return home from the wedding celebrations. It was uncertain. You couldn't necessarily tell what hour exactly. But that uncertainty didn't stop these servants. It was late at night, but the servants are dressed in their work gear, uh, robes in their case. I'm not sure what work robes look like as opposed to leisure robes. Um, The text literally says their loins were girded. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had your loins girded. Anyone... Uh, want to admit to that. Um, what that literally means is that they have a belt around their waist, they've tucked in their shirts and they've hitched up their robes so their legs are free so they can move quickly. They're ready to work, they're ready to run, ready to get to it, even in the middle of the night. And though it's late at night, they're awake. The lamps are filled with oil, the wicks are trimmed and the house is flooded with light. You can imagine coming home you know, expecting darkness, and there's this great, glorious, warm light coming out. They're prepared, they're alert. They're not dozing off, these servants. They're not irritable and grouchy. Uh, They're ready to go, dressed, so they can spring up and joyfully serve the master when he comes back. And Jesus says that's how his followers are to wait for him. That is to say there's nothing passive about waiting for Jesus. There's nothing slow and plodding about it. The right way to wait for Jesus is to be active for him. Joyous anticipation, active preparation, willing to serve. So that when the master came home, what happened? Well, you can imagine his joy that night coming home from this week-long wedding feast, this amber light streaming out the windows into the night, the warmth, the doors are flung open, and there they are, smiling and ready to serve, holding bright lamps, greeting him. No doubt they had a late night snack ready to go. I don't know what you'd want if you were coming home to your servants, uh, a Milo and some Tim Tams, a sherry and some chocolate, (laughs) Uh, something else. Uh, Whatever the case, it wasn't a note on the kitchen counter saying there's some dinner in the fridge, heat it up in the microwave if you can be bothered, right? That's not what they've done. It's clear they're enthusiastic Welcome home, Master. We're really glad you're back. Here, give me your robe. You must be tired. You know, can we give you a back rub? Um, take a seat. Let me wash your feet. What a, what a way to be greeted. What a way to welcome this Master home. It's a lovely scene. They actually like their Master and they're ready to serve him. But if that's lovely, the twist that Jesus gives is even more beautiful than that. See, verse 37, what does the Master do at this welcome? He says it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. 
I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and he will come and wait on them. He so moved this master by the way they've greeted him that instead of him sitting down at the table getting the back rubs in the Tim Tams, he says to them, you sit at the table, let me serve you. And so he hikes up his robes, he goes to the pantry, he cooks them a meal, he puts it on the table, he fills their glasses. And I guess there's laughter and joy as he serves them in the middle of the night. Now you might think, that's unbelievable, (laughs) you know, what master, if you had servants, would you do that for them? If you, if you came home, you lived in a different part of Sydney, maybe you lived up at Denham Court, uh, you know, would you come home and think, nah, I just love them so much. <sighs> now, I've been at this party all week, it's, it's my turn to do something for them. What master does that? The Lord of the Manor doesn't cook for the servants. I, I bet Donald Trump doesn't come home, Barack Obama doesn't come home and serve the White House staff, right? I I bet Malcolm Turnbull wouldn't do it and I bet Bill Shorten wouldn't do it either. It's unbelievable. But you see, Jesus is saying, this master does, this one does. And, And you can be sure that Jesus means it when it comes to himself because several months later, in the upper room in Jerusalem, at the end of this journey that he's on currently, in fact, the very night before his death, Jesus strips himself down to the bare essentials, he wraps himself in a towel and he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes his servants' feet, his disciples' feet. The master serves the servants. And that act was highly symbolic of what he was about to do the very next day, serve them in a way that they could not serve him, serve them in a way they couldn't even serve themselves. He was going to the cross to die for their sins. He, he left his glorious throne in heaven, gave it all up to take on the nature of a servant and came to serve us by dying in our place so we could be reconciled to God, forgiven, washed clean, washed, washed clean as the Bible puts it by his blood. But it's also symbolic, even prophetic, of the ultimate wedding supper of the Lamb, at that meal, because if you come over the page, if you've got the Pew Bible there to Luke 13 and verse 29, he talks about that day he'll come when he puts on the meal for everyone. People will come from east and west and north and south. They'll take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. To so the crowd of those who've trusted and followed are there dining at the Lord's expense. Unending joy. And I think when you see that, you can begin to understand the words here in Luke 12, verse 38. It will be good for those servants. Not as good, it will be great for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night, even if he comes home at four o'clock in the morning. Good. It's better than good. The actual word translated here, is blessed. Blessed are those servants, even if they're waiting up in the wee hours of the morning for him to come home. Despite the length of their wait, they are the blessed ones. It is great. And he's saying, we're going to be blessed if we're ready, if we've got our sleeves rolled up and lights turned on and we're serving. The king of kings will come, he'll seat you and he'll serve you. Uh, That is eternity, he's not some sterile, boring, plastic 
weird place of clouds and harps. Uh, that's kind of freaky and eerie to me. But you know, it's, it's a sumptuous feast. Joy and laughter and singing. Uh, that's the picture the Bible has of, of heaven and it goes on eternally. And so are you ready? Are you ready? You can tell who's not ready. You're not ready if you don't care that he's coming back. You're not ready if you're not expecting anything to happen. Those who are not ready are the ones who are spiritually still half asleep, who are lolling around doing nothing, spiritually speaking. To be ready isn't to be sitting passively in church on a Sunday and and wear your Sunday best. To be ready is to have your loins girded up, your lamp lit and ready to go when Jesus comes. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, Jesus uses that analogy of this faithful servant to, to tell us how to be ready. But then he changes the metaphor to really ram home the urgency of being ready. And so verse 39, he says, But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now that image of a thief coming, it burnt itself into the minds and hearts of the disciples. And you know that because again and again in their writings, they they repeat it. They were stunned by it. And so we saw it a few weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, Peter in 2 Peter 3 says the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire the earth and everything in it will be laid bare or again in Revelation 16 15 behold I will come like a thief blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed you never expect a thief to come do you? The lug gates were robbed a couple of years ago. Wynne had all her jewellery stolen and a bunch of other stuff, some cash. Uh, if they'd known the guy was coming, yeah, they would have got extra locks, wouldn't they? They'd just put bars on the window. You know, one of those New York, New York locks with the, the stick going up to the doorknob so you can't get in. You know, the Hackett's, who were here a few years ago, moved down the coast, uh, they were robbed at 6 o'clock in the morning. Steve came out in his pyjamas to find two guys hooking his big screen TV at the door and down the stairs and he chased them down the road in his undies. Uh, he didn't catch them. I'm surprised because you'd imagine running with the big screen TV is not that easy. Uh, maybe running in his boxes was even harder. But anyway. <laughs> but you don't expect the thief to come. That's the idea. And so you've got to be prepared. Are you ready? Verse 40, you also must be ready because the sun of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And I think you've got to say that even if it's not likely to happen tonight, it could happen tonight, but even if it's not likely to happen tonight, Jesus is coming back to a world which is not prepared. You look around and think to yourself, who are the people in our community who are getting themselves ready to meet him? Who around us? Who's doing that? The TV personalities and the newspapers? They're not prepared. The world's leaders? They're not ready. The false teachers and false religions? They're they're not prepared. 
But also a lot of the church isn't prepared because it's much like the Pharisees and the teachers and the experts of the law, creating rituals and performances that God has not commanded, seeking its own glory, pretending it's got no sin, not listening to God. Australia is not prepared, by and large. We're, our country is much like the rich fool who's putting our hope and trust in stuff to protect and save us. I mean, what good is all this wealth? What good is this housing boom? What is it going to do to us in, in the long term, in eternity? Our eyes and hearts are on everything except Jesus. And it's a serious problem because we're so easily caught up in it ourselves, being just like the world. And so we need to stop and reflect, understand the times in which we live. We're waiting for him to come back. He is coming back. When we don't know, it'll be unexpected. But that's all the more reason to get ready now. Well, what happens if we're not ready? Well, pick it up in verse 45. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the men servants and maidservants and to eat and drink and get drunk. You know, there's the liquor cabinet. No one else is using it. <laughs> The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he's not aware of. And this is quite gruesome. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. I'll still be punished. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So whatever way, there is a reckoning to be had. And yes, there might be bad and worse, but both the one who knows heaps and the ones who knows little are punished, both miss the feast. Yet what Jesus says should be truly frightening to us because we're here. We're in the know. You cannot walk out of church today and say, I wasn't warned. I wasn't told. There is a judgment coming and Jesus is returning to bring it. And you might hear this stuff and think, well, this is the Jesus I thought I knew something about. You know, we're so used to the sentimental, smaltzy Jesus with the long flowing locks, kind of running through the fields, wouldn't hurt a fly, yeah, you I know, just wanted people to hug and love one another and sing Kumbaya together. <laughs> but, but it's a distorted picture of who Jesus is, which is why we've done this whole couple of months on Jesus is. Yes, he is compassion. And we saw him deal so gently and kindly and lovingly with that lady. Yes, he is the friend of sinners. We saw that on Good Friday as he died there and he promised this thief who died with him, he would be with him in paradise. And yes, he is the lover of our souls. He can be our greatest and best friend. But what he's saying here is that he is also the master. He is in charge and you cannot go on ignoring him and pretending like he's not coming back to take possession of what is his. It is all his. This world is his. You are his. Everything you have is his. He is the king of kings. And while he will lovingly serve his people who have rejoiced and been ready for him, the reality is, is that he's going to separate those who are his from those who are not. 
and it's a permanent division. But that division doesn't just appear at the end of time. It actually starts now as people respond or don't respond to what he says, respond to his warnings, respond to his offer of mercy and amnesty. And that's the point he moves on to. That the truth about Jesus, the, the message of salvation and judgment, actually divides people. It divides the world. It divides communities. It even divides families. See there, verse 49. Did you expect Jesus to say this? I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. He was talking about his death. Do you think I come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. I come to bring division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. As people hear and respond to who he is and what he offers, um, some reject it and go their own way, some receive it. Jesus divides and it's wrenching division. And you may well have experienced it yourself in your own family. I can think through friends as painful stuff they've gone through, uh, rejection, uh, not spoken to at Christmas parties and worse. Um, you know, friends of mine have gone through this kind of thing in, in, to great pain. They've turned to Christ knowing him as the awesome saviour and king of Kearns, only to find out quickly that loyalty to Jesus is seen as disloyalty to mum and dad or disloyalty to the friends or disloyalty to country in some cases. And some I've known cannot bear that cost. They fear retribution if they become a Christian or, or they want their approval of friends more than they want Jesus to, to love them. And so they turn their back on Jesus, who they know speaks the truth, and they will not come to him. And so it's really a question of whether you think Jesus' warnings are serious enough, which they are, and his promises worth enough, which they are. Do you want to be feasting at the wedding supper of Jesus for eternity, or do you want to be cast out? It's just a matter of time before he returns and brings these things to reality. Which one do you want? If you want the feast that he offers, you need to sort things out with him. And I take it that's why Jesus finishes this whole section on his second coming with a call to sort things out with your adversary. Because the adversary is him. It's not just saying stop fighting with those people around you, which is true enough, but he's saying stop fighting with him. Stop fighting with the king. Come back to him. Verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and then the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. It's not just a, a nice moral story at the end of the thing. He's saying, sort it out with him. 
Sort it out before it's too late, before you meet me as your judge. And so how do you, how do you be reconciled with this master? How do you get reconciled with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus? Well, the best news of all is that's why he came the first time, why he came to earth and why he died on Good Friday, which we celebrated last week, and why it is he rose again. He came to pay for you to be reconciled to him, to have a clean start with him, so that it does not matter what is in the past. It doesn't matter what skeletons are in your closet. It doesn't matter what dark secrets you keep. It doesn't matter where you stand or where you stood even this morning. It can all be forgiven. You can have a fresh start with him. You can have this joy unending if you come to him. That's how you get right with him. You come humbly to the cross where he died to set you free and you let him serve you. You turn to him and you say, I don't deserve the kindness that you offer. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be feasting in your kingdom or in your presence or in your glory. But you know what? I thank you ever so much that you died for me, that your blood can wash even the foulest clean, even me, and that you've done it all that I might be free and become your servant. So please, Jesus, have me back. Forgive me. Change me. And help me to be ready for your return. And as we wrap up this couple of months of focusing on who Jesus is, I want to lead you in that prayer this morning uh, so that if you want to be his, whether you started this day as his or not, if you want to be at that feast, if you want to be in his family and you want to know the joy, the peace, the hope of knowing you're right with him when he comes back and that he'll take you home, then, then pray it with me. It's going to come up on the screen here. Thanks, Andrew. Really, it's just, it boils down to three things. I know I don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus has paid for me. Please have me back. Now, whether you've prayed this before and you've become a Christian already, or whether today's the day, I ask you whether you dare to pray this with me. Dear God, I don't deserve the kindness you offer. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be feasting in your kingdom or presence. But thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die for me. Thank you that because of him I can be washed clean. Thank you that you have done it all. Please forgive me and change me. Please have me as part of your family. Please help me to live as your servant and to be ready for your return. Amen. Well, God hears prayer. He answers prayer. And if you really meant that, if you, you want to be right with him, he's paid. And there's great joy. Now, we'd love to get you some help. Starting off with a fresh start with Jesus is sometimes not easy. There is division sometimes and there's difficulty. Uh, and there's things you might need to work out in your life. We'd love to get you that help. On the inside of the uh, pews, on the aisle side, uh, are feedback cards. And if you've prayed with that and if you've turned to Jesus, you, you, 
you think I need this fresh start, um, just just fill that in. You might have other comments or questions or prayer points, which means that you know if you put if you give that back to us, no one can assume what you meant by it because you could just be saying, "Hey, nice weather outside." <laughs> um, put put it in the offertory plate. The the people counting the money they won't read it. Just fold it in half. They'll just give it straight to me, uh, or slip it to me after the service, and uh, we'll. we'll We'll talk about it through the week uh, at some time in private, uh, what's happened or what's happening or what questions you've got. But the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for him? We're going to sing.